what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey folks, if you'd like us to tell the canine community about your goods and services, be listed on all our show notes and reach new dizzying heights of success, then contact us to be one of our new sponsors for 2022. We are looking for creditable people within our community to help support our show while providing our listeners with access to quality products from your business. If you want to jump on board, please contact us at info at thecanineparadigm.com. Tell us about your business and we'll get back to you. Spaces will be limited to ensure both quality of products and not to overpopulate the airtime. But We're looking forward to having you as a new sponsor of The Canine Paradigm. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm in the studio today with my co-host, Glenn Cook. The flooding has subsided. The sun was out today. It was a beautiful day outside. It was amazing, actually, to be honest. It really lifted the spirits. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, to be honest, mate, I have been so down in the dumps over the last three weeks because literally we're living under a cloud of rain for three weeks solid. Yeah. Do you see Maurice Delacosta's place? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that poor guy. Man, that's the oh. second time in as many years that they've flooded out totally. Hey, guys, in all seriousness, Maurice, who owns Pro Canine Supplies over in Londonderry, his place got fucking annihilated in the floods. I'm thinking if, as a community, if you want to help him out when he's back on his feet, buy something from his shop. Yeah, totally. So you can find them on Pro Canine Supplies. Make sure you go Pro Canine supplies. Yeah. yeah. Pro canine supplies. Not the other way around. No. Look up pro canine supplies. Maurice Delacosta. They're great people over there. They do an IGP club. And this is the second time in two years it's had happened to him. Be a good community member and, and maybe just buy something from his shop. It doesn't have yeah. to be something huge. And they have good shit. They have, they do. Like, they have great really cool stuff. stuff. Yeah. Like really, really good dog sport stuff of all types. We've bought heaps of stuff off them in the past. It's the highest tier gear you can get anyway, so it's not like it's rubbish. It's all really, really good stuff. But, yeah. you know, help them out, look after them. Those guys have suffered. Like what we got hit at at Dural was an inconvenience. It still cost us a lot of money to get plumbers out and unblock everything and clean up, and the poor girls were soaking wet. And mm. it's problems, but when I look at our problems compared to what him and his group have endured – Heart goes out to them. Yeah, especially difficult for them because they don't have pets. They only have working dogs there, like in the kennels. So evacuating them, storing them, problematic, right? Like it's very, very difficult. And not that it's less difficult for people with pets, but like very difficult problem to solve evacuating a kennel full of, you know, high- High-end working dogs. Yeah. Yeah. I think him and the team were well and truly prepared and ahead of it. Mm but not thinking that it was going to go to the levels it got to. But they, in the days coming before, they had all the trailers and all the cars there getting all the dogs out. And Yeah, unfortunately, they're pretty well rehearsed at it at this point. And isn't that terrible? Yeah. The fact that they have to be so well rehearsed at that. Yeah. So I want to shout out to them that they've been able to endure this and Maurice has still got his head held up high and 
that can-do attitude of starting over again, which is sad. Like, yeah. that's heartbreaking. Also want to say to my staff that have endured three weeks of absolute shitty weather that have walked around, and I mean this, they're literally leaving every day soggy and wet mm. from walking around in ankle-high water, still trying to do their job, still trying to keep things at bay, and they really did a good job, and they always do us proud. So mm. it's a big thank you to them. I'll say if you're listening in a place where you're like, oh, who cares, three weeks of rain, get used to it. It's like we just aren't set up for extreme weather in Sydney, in New South Wales really. Like we don't have snow. It gets very hot here mm. and we are set up for that mostly. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't get very cold and it's not meant to rain like that. Not so like that. We're not we're not really set up for that kind of weather. It impacts us very significantly. Well, rain is rain, but this is like exceptionally hard rain that just endured. Like when you're talking about between one and 200 mils of rain falling in within an hour. Yeah, a year's worth. Uh, yeah, a year's worth of rain falling in one day and yeah. not even in one day, like a, a, a small portion of that day. Yeah. From where Narelle and I are, like where we train dogs on the back oval, we couldn't see the oval. It was raining that hard. So you just couldn't see. It just looked like a waterfall of water pouring out of the sky, and that's what it sounded like on the roof. So, you know, the people who live near water runoffs and rivers and lakes and everything like that, like they've copped it sweet. Mm. I know we've talked about this over the last episode. It just really shocked me when I saw the the yeah, damage that's been done. You know, like we talked about Lismore and all those surrounding towns, but when I saw Maurice's place, it really hit home mm. how rapid and how fast it spread. So... Mate, if you're listening to this, if any of your staff are listening to this, you know, our hearts go out for you and just let us know how we can help. Yeah. Hey, as promised, we put up a post saying, what do you want to talk about? Let's talk about some dog training. Yeah. And I've got a ton of replies to that, even though I only posted that two hours ago, so we can work through them. I've had a look at some of them quickly. I kind of briefly look through it. What I think we'll just do is go through them together. We'll jump some because, you know, some of them are are topics that we've covered pretty recently. And we'll just kind of mention that, but we'll work through. There's probably a few episodes worth of Q&A here. And like, personally, I love these episodes. So I get excited about it. And we get good responses from them too. The Ask Us Anything file. They rate pretty well. And so what's exciting is you get to hear my point of view and Glenn's point of view, which is cool. Mm. But just remember, if you're into this kind of thing, I love answering questions about this kind of stuff. I love getting into the weeds, technical stuff on dog training. We do this live every month in the Patreon. It costs you 10 bucks a month but you can ask whatever questions you want in there. And I go live for two hours and answer questions at least once a month. So yep. if you're into this kind of thing, that's another place you can do it. There's been a bit of a drop in Patreon. Yeah. Yeah. Weird times. A little bit. Could be because of flooding and Corona and shit like that. But yeah, there has been a drop. If you're capable, and even if you're not, the best way that you can support us through that is just by recommending it to a friend. Yeah. There's a ton of education. Yeah. It's not like you go in there and you just, putting money in our piggy bank. There's a lot of production that goes into there Mm -hmm. and all the production equipment that we've bought and purchased comes from our Patreon. So we up the ante when we've got the finances to do so. Let's start at the top. Yep. Hannah Wilson asks, what's something that you've learned this year that's been valuable to you? It's early in the year. Got an answer to that? It's a bit left field, but I've got one. One of the things that we've really been working on this year, if we're going to talk about 2022. Yep. I think one of the things that we really had to work on and really come together on is tightening up our own backyard. Yeah. Okay. Our policies and procedures. We've brought on new staff and we've got some amazing people that work in this industry or in our organization. So I'm talking our organization now. We've had to really knuckle down on that. And some of the the new work that the staff are putting through have been absolutely amazing. But one of the areas I think that we've really learned 
how to improve on is getting back to people quickly Mm. and better forms of communication. I think they're two things that really resonate well with people. COVID has done weird things to people. Mm -hmm. It has impacted people in different ways differently. And when I say that to people, people usually nod their head and they go, yeah, that's true. I see people responding and resonating differently with the whole thing. But because we went into the end of the year, pretty much by November, our governments in Australia basically said, Early December, life is going back to normal. We're just going to let it run Mm -hmm. and we're just going to do what we need to do in order to get ahead of it. And they opened the borders. They opened vaccinated and unvaccinated. We're allowed to run together on December 15. And they basically said, let's just try and have a normalised life from here on in. Because of that, our boarding kennels absolutely got inundated in the Mm. shortest amount of time. Other states were trying to get ahead of it as well. They were jumping all over it and... Some states were slow to open borders, others were quick, and all of a sudden we had an inundation of people wanting to come in. Mm. Lots of dogs that we'd known and a lot that we'd never seen before. So we had a lot of new staff that were on board because we had to hire quickly. That was really hard. But one of the areas where we seemed to resolve things quickly was by being quick ourselves, Mm. you know, like not leaving things, tasking things faster, I think better forms of communication, as mentioned, faster forms of communication, and it really does boil down to your effectiveness in communication. Mm. Like when you listen to people like Matt Boone talking about sales and so forth, it's about having relationships with people, getting back, doing what you need to do to earn those sales and earn the trust of the people that are coming to you. Mm. It's not a matter of just being fast. It's a matter of having speed, but also having accuracy and attention to detail as well. (laughs) Yeah, I was in a meeting today. Mm. With Matt, and a, a thing came up, speed is good, yep. but accuracy is final, which is an old sniper saying, yep. right? Yeah, I like that as a quote. Yeah, That's, it works. That does work. All right, let's move on to the next one. This yep. is an interesting one because me and Jazz were talking about you this You haven't the answered it yet. Oh, what have I learned this year? Yeah. I think the importance of community and talking to people in real life. Like I, I think that we've been feeling the pinch of that over like the last two years. And for me, that definitely came to a head in this industry anyway. Yeah, you've been a bit down. Yeah, well, I just think that it's that engagement with real people. Yeah. Because people are just fucking turds online all the time. And if that's your only interaction with people is seeing what they're like online, then, you know, you can really – yeah, because, like, I don't really post much, you know, on Facebook and stuff, and I don't get involved in arguments. And so the people who are, you know, like me and don't want to be involved in people's bullshit Mm. just kind of aren't present, right? But they're seeing it, but they're not interacting. And so it's – I think that interacting with people in real life, and and that's something we absolutely need. I'm super excited about IACP conference this year. Hopefully, by the time this is out, well, I'll tell you anyway, I'm speaking at it. So, Mm -hmm. like, I'm going. (laughs) I'm going. It's pretty important that I get there. It'll take a world war to stop me going. But, you know, fuck who knows at this point. But, yeah, that's what's been important. Well, that's good. At least both of us have had a crack at that now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Hey, so Jazz says... Uh, we should talk about the differences in training sessions for people with dogs that have lifestyle problems as opposed to those who have dogs with no lifestyle problems. Basically what we spoke about the other day because me and her were talking about it the other day. So let me sort of give you the recap. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting in that both of us, less me at the moment and more I'm on the other side. But so mostly what I train people to do with dogs is dog training for something. That's what I've really been very fortunate enough to position myself to do over the last couple of years because that's what I enjoy doing. Now, you know, I've done a shit ton and still do now and again, 
you know, behavioral problems. But for the most part, people come to me because they want to train a dog to do something, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of the people who I coach and, you know, interact with are dog trainers already. And we're working on dog training stuff rather than training their dog. Yep. But there's a real difference between how a session of those go. And, you know, we talk about the no more, one more time. And we talk about building drive and, and cultivating it and doing all those kinds of things. And we talk about short sessions and, you know, not overdoing it and hitting the learning moment with the dog and that kind of stuff. And I think what we were discussing is there's a real difference between training a dog to change its lifestyle and the way that you're going to interact with the dog when you want like the brain of the dog to be different or not necessarily the brain of the dog, but there's just the way the dog acts 24 seven is really different to the way that you treat a dog when you're training a specific behavior. Mm. And we may be me, you and many, many others have maybe not been very good at explaining that to people in that people maybe think that there's a blurred line between those two things and that that isn't a very blurry line at all. So for example, training a pet owner to have their dog not pull on the leash. So for us in a training session of, you know, we're going to go out there, we're going to train biting dogs and stuff afterwards. My dog's going to come flying in there off leash. I'm going to cue him into the session. We're going to do what we do. And then at the end of the session, I'm going to say, hey, we're done. I'm going to unclip him. And before and after that session, I don't really give a shit what he does Mm. because behaviorally he's in check. He does whatever he wants. He'll run around, sniff people. He'll say hello to people. He'll check things out. He'll get a drink. You know, he'll just do his own thing. And there's a really clear start. I'll cue him in. And very obviously he goes, we're working. And when we're done, I'll cue him out. And he goes, oh, I'm done. I'll do whatever I want. Mm. And that's fine for a work period. And in fact, not just fine, I encourage that. That's what I think is important. It's important to me and my dog. But if he had behavioral issues or I was trying to sort of modify how he lived as a dog, there is no start and there is no stop, Mm. right? So little things like, you know, when we talk about, you know, how many reps should I do of this? And it's do three or four and that's enough for the day. But when it's pulling on the leash, it's like you never stop. You never allow him to do it. Like don't allow the dog to practice something that you don't want to let him do in the future. Yeah. Right. And I think that's one of the things, you know, certainly how often have you seen it? You're doing a session with someone and you're like, Hey, this is how you've got a behavioral problem with the dog. Now the dog is, it could be a big problem. could be a small problem. doesn't matter, whatever. Right. And you go, this is how you fix it. And right there in front of you, they're really good at it. And then we go, okay, we've ended the session. And then they walk to their car in a totally different manner to what you just did. And Mm. they're like, you know, the, the session has ended in my mind, the session has ended. It's over. And it's like, well, actually, there's no start and there's no stop to the session. Mm. That is dog training. Like you're looking to try and change that dog's lifestyle. You're looking to change the way that the dog does something, which is something that happens all the time. That, you know, let's stick with the example of pulling on the leash. You, you can't do a session where you're, you know, it doesn't matter what equipment you're using, whether it's everything from harness to prong collar and everything in between. Mm. If you're going to train the dog not to pull on it, you can't do a session with the trainer and then go, thank you very much. That was a wonderful time. Shake hands and then let the dog water ski you to the car. <laughs> Which is what predominantly most pet dog owners yeah. do. And that's why the pet dog owning industry is so prolifically rich. Yeah. We talk about like our desire and our love for the sporting dog world, which we've both had interactions in those circles, similar mm-hmm. interests, different interests, same, same, but different. Mm-hmm. The sporting dog world is infinitely small compared to the pet dog training world. Oh, it's a drop in the bucket. It's a drop in the bucket. Tiny, tiny amount of people with small pockets of people all over the world compared to the abundant overreach of people with the pet dog world mm-hmm. because 
the people who are the sporting dog people who are interested in that realm, they're purists. Yeah. It's like a religion to them. The other people are just getting by. You know, in one way or another, we've discussed this in episodes where we've talked about the culture of those two villages. Like yeah. one is a purist, the other is just it's a necessary evil. I think mm. that's the best way to describe it. And most people who have been clients of mine, that's kind of what they think of us. You're a necessary evil. Mm. You know, something that I have to spend money on just to try and get by with my dog. Similar to what you were saying before, Pat, people have come to me and said, how long do I need to train my dog for? And I said, it never ends. Mm. And they kind of look at me with bewilderment. And I said, you've got two choices here. You can make it a lot harder on yourself or you can make it considerably easy dependent on what you're going to invest during the period of the day. Mm. I'm saying to you, all you need to do is five to 10 minutes on a regular scale to make considerably huge inroads with this dog. Mm. Because if you don't do that, it's like everything else you want to learn. Like if you want to learn a new skill, you have to do, you said it the other day, you don't stop training. Mm. You know, that's one of the things you can't stop doing. You can go without time with having a decoy, but you can't go without spending that critical time with your dog during the day to do something. Mm. It bewilders me sometimes the defiance that people have to well, think that they can't find that 10-minute pocket. Let's tease that out a little bit because okay. – sure. I say the same thing. I say to people five, 10 minutes a day, a couple of times a day. That's it. Yep. If you don't have that for your dog, you don't, shouldn't have a fucking dog. At least once. Yeah. At least once. And I used to even, you know, I'm sure I stole this from someone else. I used to say, just train, like when you're watching TV, no one watches TV with ads anymore anyway, but mm. like when you're watching TV, when the commercials come on, do a little session. That's yep. all you need. Like do that a couple of times a day and that's better than nothing. Mm. But- the people who need dog training, like who unhappy with the way that they live with their dog, they're not getting along with their dog because of the dog's behavioral issues, right? And it, it could often be that there's nothing wrong with the dog. It's just that they've that's what the dog wants to do and they've never been shown not to. Mm. That five to 10 minutes a day is exactly the problem that me and Jazz were talking about, where in that five to 10 minutes, they're great. They do everything that you tell them to do. It, yeah. They put in the time. Yeah, 10-minute dog. But then they hit the clock or, you know, the timer goes off and they go, okay, that's the session mm. and the rules are out for the rest of the time. And that's fine if you're training the dog to do a specific thing. You want your dog to do something, like no worries. And it does kind of work when the reason that there's behavioral issues with the dog is because of the lack of stimulation, right? So we do fix some problems in that regard where, you know, the dog's just overexcited in the house, he's overstimulated, he's bored, he's destructive. There could be loads of things that the dog's doing. There's loads of reasons why doing five or 10 minutes of training would assist in the dog. And that can radically change the life of the dog, but that's not going to fix him pulling on the leash, mm. right? So like if he's pulling on the leash, you are never not training that. If you want the dog to be calm in the house, you are never not training that. Like that is a hundred percent. It doesn't matter. Like you can't for a lifestyle issue, mm. there can be no session now, but there is a blurred line on that because some lifestyle issues are just from an unfulfilled dog who's looking for attention. So if it is just an unfulfilled dog who's looking for attention, you can go like, hey, here's the attention. Here it is in a controlled burst. And that, you know, satiates that need for the dog and the dog just chills out the rest of the time. But if he you know, has an issue that he's involved, like he is finding reinforcement from, mm. right? So it's not just something that he's doing to bring on interaction with you. He's not looking to control you. He's not being operant with you. He just finds reinforcement in it. And he's just like, I just want to do this because this feels to. like the thing that I should do. Yeah. And it becomes that problem of, you know, to stick with pulling on the leash as an example, in that you 
you can't ever allow him to pull on the leash again if you decide, I never want this to happen. You can't say, well, here's your five minutes of, here's the session, and then you can water scheme into the car. And I think as dog trainers, we need to better explain that and then also acknowledge the issues of, you know, reality of living. And I think, that, you know, I made a YouTube video on it explaining to people as well. Like I get that there are times that you can't do this, mm. but you need to have a cue so that if you've got a dog that water skis you everywhere you go and you decide, no, I, I'm going to fix this, he can never water ski you again except with permission to do so. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that we kind of leave out and we say to people like, you know, like I use equipment because I think that it is delineates better for the dog and the person where I say whatever piece of equipment we're going to say is the no pull equipment and however we're going to train it, it doesn't matter whether, you know, what technique we're going to use to train it, I don't care. We're going to say with this piece of equipment on, there's no tension allowed in the leash. You'll be punished in one way or another if there is tension on the leash. And more often than not, that's just like a lack of progression is going to be the punishment. We're going to stop right here. You're not going to get where you are going. And you're going to be reinforced when there is no tension in the leash leading to that piece of equipment, i.e. like positive reinforcement in place, or we continue the progression that you wanted anyway, right? So, Mm. but then we also go, here's a separate piece of equipment and you're allowed to water ski me with that on, right? And you can find reinforcement yourself with that, which is essentially what you're saying to the dog. Drag me wherever you want to go. Fulfill your own needs with that piece of equipment on. And that's a really easy thing to do, and it works really effectively. You know, anyone can do that. But I think that's one of the things that a lot of dog trainers don't explain very well, and I think that, you know, myself included, and I think that a lot of pet dog owners don't draw the line between is that, there is some sessions are forever sessions. Some dog training is 24 seven mm. and other dog training is like very intense bursts. And you know, a dog probably needs it all to use myself as an example. Again, there are things that I will never allow my dog to do, right? Like he's just never allowed to do those things. And I don't allow him to practice them because, and I intervene early, you know, aggressive to random people. It's one of the things my dog's just not allowed to do that. Mm. And of course, as a puppy, he experimented with behaviors and tried to see what he could do with people. And I go, Hey, you can never do that. And I get in early and I don't let him build up a habit or a like for it, or just a, a reinforcement history is essentially what we're saying. But when then those people come to you and they've got a dog that has a big reinforcement history in whatever they're doing, your five-minute sessions a day doing something else is going to create a cool reinforcement history within that session and within the context of that session. Mm. And you're, you know, you do your five to ten minutes twice a day and you're for sure going to have a dog that for five to ten minutes twice a day does cool shit. But that is very unlikely unless I say, like I say, it's just an unfulfilled dog. But that is very unlikely to affect the other 23 and a half hours a day, Mm. right? Like you, some sessions are 24 seven and that's, you know, the kind of thing like barking in the house, being destructive, all the things that people call dog trainers for, you know, it's very rare. Like, as you're just saying the sport market or not even the bite sport market, just the, I want to do cool stuff with my dog. That's Mm. a niche. That's a very, very small Mm. part of the dog industry. The majority of what dog trainers are interacting for is like, my dog's doing something I don't like and I need to figure out how to stop him. And that's where we now, yeah, now, mm. and that's where we need to explain to people like never allow him to practice that again. And we can get really technical, and we can talk about reinforcement history and schedules and all that kind of stuff, mm. or we can just be much more simple and say to people like, don't let him do things that piss you off under any circumstances, right? Because very often the dog can't tell the difference between. Mm. You know, my dog can do it, your dog can do it, and pretty much any dog trainer listening, their dog can do it. They can go like, this is a session 
different set of rules. That session is over. Other set of rules applies. But for most people's dogs, they're like, well, how come these rules are on sometimes and how come they're off other times? And then you're going to a variable schedule of reinforcement for things that the dog finds reinforcing itself, i.e. like pulling on the leash. Some absolutely salient points there. And I totally agree with everything you said. The entire time that you were saying that, and I was thinking back to what you're talking about, it reminded me of that quote that I brought up probably about a dozen episodes ago now where it came from the guitar world, which says practice makes permanent. So practice perfectly. Mm. The old saying is practice makes perfect. Mm. However, it doesn't, it makes it permanent. And that's why with what you were saying before, when I was listening to you talking about how dogs learn to do these things, see, they're always learning. They're always doing something and they're creating habits in and out our lifestyle the whole time. And this is what dog owners really, during the introduction and the induction, not so much the introduction, more so the induction of trainer meeting handler sitting with dog. It's a portion of training that I really sat with with people when we were doing the initial breakdown of training, when I really got a good idea of what was going on in the home. It took a little bit of time. It always does when you're cutting your teeth in dog training to see what's happening in each home and sort of get a lay of the behavior of what's going on. But it's all very similar. Mm. Once you sort of see a house in a, a rich suburb, a house in a poor suburb, a house in the west side, a house in the east side, north, south, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if it's one person and a dog. It doesn't matter if it's a family with a dog. You start to see a lot of similarities. Mm. And with those similarities, what you do see is the dog has adjusted to a lifestyle that it's been allowed to have. Case in point, two different friends of mine who've got children, young children, youngish children, in between junior school and high school. Mm-hmm. One set of parents were having problems with their child and were still allowing that child to go ahead and do all the things that they wanted to do. Allowed them. One of the kids was a sports nut. They still wanted this kid not to miss out on sports. So they let him go ahead and do all the sports. Other parents in a very similar situation, very similar, like two of them are almost in parallel. They basically knew that this kid was obsessed with sport and said, that behavior means the end of sport Mm -hmm. until that behavior starts to rectify. And we start to see like a convergence of better behavior. That sport is off the table, instant change in the child. And Mm -hmm. they said, it doesn't work like this. You can't change temporarily and then get it back and then go back to the old behaviors. Because if we see you converging back into those old behaviors, sport is permanently off the table. Like we're unenrolling you, even though you're doing great in it, we're proud of you with the sport and that's where you're excelling. We're taking that away from you. And that child protested and said, that's not fair. And they said, we don't care. We're your parents, not your friends and your buddies. The way you're behaving is going to end up in jail. We're not going to have it. Mm. That's the end of the story. Other parents said, we can't do that because that's not how other parents would parent their kids and blah, blah, blah. Kids wouldn't stop doing their behavior, you know, like constantly getting in trouble. The problems were escalating. They both said to me, what do you think? I said to the parents that didn't do it, you're wrong in not practicing a negative punishment, but you're his parents, not me. But if you're asking me, I'm telling you you're wrong. And the other parents, I said, you're right. The reason that they're right is because you could see a transformation in behavior. Like you can actually see it changing because they were willing to do what they needed to do. So when dog parents are put in the same sort of situation, you will get the behavior that you're ultimately allowing the dog to do. Mm. So if you're getting what you would term misbehavior, okay, so if you're a pet parent and you're listening to this, 
if you're getting a consistency of poor behaviours, for some reason, unless it's mental illness, for some reason you're allowing that to happen. Mm. It's just that the dog is still in those practicing bad behaviours and getting away with it. So not only is the dog practicing bad behaviours, but they're also perfecting bad behaviours. And to the dog, it doesn't even know it's bad behaviour. It just knows that it's rewardable behaviour to it, as you said before. They're the areas of concern which people really need to align themselves with. Like, do I want this to stop or significantly reduce? And what am I going to do about it? Like, am I prepared to go that extra mile and do what those parents did by saying the high stakes thing that you want you're not having it anymore. Yeah. And they really saw a difference in that child's behavior. He's doing great now, like not a problem for years mm. because he knows what they're going to do and they mean it. They literally said, there is no dipping your toe in and out of the water on this issue. You either toe the line or it's gone completely where the other parents still having problems. Yeah. I think that a lot of people, myself included until recently, didn't fully understand the necessity of like avoiding time in practice of undesirable behaviors. And it's one of the things that sort of concerns me because people are trying to build cloud online, you know, for their business, whatever is like before and after videos are often really problematic, I think. Right. Mm. So when a dog turns up to the trainer, I think when people make before and after videos, if it's a video you've been sent by the owner prior to prior to you engaging with the dog, Mm -hmm. I think that's okay. But I get really uncomfortable and it makes me, very concerned when I see the trainer handling the dog and letting the dog express the problem, right? So it's always some sort of aggression, reactivity sort of issue. And they're standing there and they're letting the dog do it and they're demonstrating, look how bad this is because I, and then, you know, two minutes later in the video, the dog's not doing it anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, when people have asked how come I, you know, not that I do that kind of work anymore, but when people ask, that's one of the things, that's what, why don't you put those out? I was like, because I'm training that dog not to do that problematic behavior from the fucking second I lay eyes onto it. And you know, often you get people that are like, don't you want to see it? I'm like, no, I don't need to see it. It's a problem behavior and I never want it to happen again. Mm. And I'm going to start manipulating the environment from the jump to never have that happen again. And if it does happen, then that's my fault and I'm going to deal with it when it does, but I'm going to avoid it ever happening again because I don't want to, I don't want to let the behavior escalate so that I can punish it at its peak. I want to see it coming on and go to the dog like, Hey, don't make that choice, man. Like that's the wrong choice. Yeah. Yeah. There's something better over here. There's Mm. only discomfort that way. Don't do that. You know, whatever your technique is going to be irrelevant. It's about not letting the dog have practice in that behavior. And Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the issues. So when, as trainers, we get the dog and we say, okay, you're never going to practice that behavior. I'm not going to allow you to do it. And if that takes me when the session ends with, you know, the, the classic, the dog's pulling on the leash. If that means it takes you 10 minutes to get to the car, perfect. Mm. Like that means you're doing the right thing. You see people, you see people doing that, but then it's when you're sort of like, okay, not only do we allow the dog to get practice in behavior, but if the dog is already well practiced in it, then you have a moment where you say, no, you can't do that. And then without it being clear to the dog that there is a, a window of opportunity. And then you're like, well, I'll let you do it now you're at a variable schedule of reinforcement. You're going to increase the strength of the behavior. You're going to start, the dog's going to start gambling with the idea of whether they can do it and they're going to do it more intensely. So it it is a very big problem. And I think as trainers, especially people who talk about training and, and, you know, one of our issues, like us as an example of the many who teach to an unknown audience, right? So me and you right here have hundreds of hours in these chairs talking into these Mm -hmm. microphones, spitting dog training advice, some good, some shit, but it goes out to 
an unknown audience. Mm. Now, some of the people that are listening to us, like you look at some of the people that have, you know, made comment here, world famous, very high end dog trainers are commenting in our group. So we're like, okay, well, that's some people who potentially are listening to what we say. Yep. And then there's like people who have their first dog listening to us and trying to get dog training advice. And so there's a big spectrum of people who there are all different variations and levels. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and their experiences, like you said, from the early foundations right up to multiple dogs, multiple different. Totally. And that's what makes it really difficult because we say no more, one more time, yep. short sessions, all that kind of stuff. But that is in a, a realm of teaching a dog to do, not the realm of teaching a dog to not do. If when in the realm of teaching a dog to not do, and by proxy of teaching a dog to not do, you can teach it to do instead, but it's the same thing, right? Like we're teaching the dog to walk next to you nicely instead of pull, not pulling on the leash. Like mm. however you want to frame that in your mind, whatever. But there is no end to that. There is no start. There is no stop to the session. And if you can't have the time to do that, then you need to then, you know, and we need to be better at explaining this is you need to give the dog permission to do it. So the dog goes, okay, now you want me to pull. And he was going to pull anyway, but you say to the dog like, yes, this is the opportunity to pull water scheme into the car because I don't have the time, energy, effort to do the things that the trainer said in this moment. Even though this is a lifestyle piece, I give you permission to be a jerk in this moment, Mm. be a jerk on purpose. And then I can withdraw that permission later and I can say, no, you need to do these things. And that's that clear windows. So I think that's sort of the line in between is where we say you need training sessions. If it's a lifestyle issue, that's a 24 seven issue, you need clear windows. So yeah, I think we covered that. Yeah. It was a good conversation, man, Jazz, having a lot of people here are interested in it. And it, it probably is a bigger topic that we could talk about later as well. It's probably one that we can circle back on and just have it as its own Yeah, expand episode. on for yeah. sure. All right. Cameron Ford's got some stuff to say. Cameron Ford. Yeah. He says, how, well, we asked what we could talk about. He says, how well do you really know your dog? We talk about training all the time, but knowing what, do we do to really learn our dogs and connect to them outside of training? I think we did an episode on this a little while no ago. Thy dog. Oh, come on, Cameron, listen to the show more, yeah, mate. It just shows that you're, <laughs> you're just not a true believer. In yeah, it. you're not consuming 100% of our content, Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> Caught out. Uh, no, but we do have an episode on that, and I think I agree 100%. I think that that is something that we get a little bit, as dog trainers, we can get it a little bit into the technical side of. Yep. You know, dog finds this reinforcing, and it's like, well, not all dogs. And it's what's perception, in- right? Like, yeah. I think we over-perceive things on a general basis. We do that about our friends. We do that about our family members. There was a good quote that I saw online the other day, which really made me think of this exact moment where it said, when somebody hasn't known you for 10 years or more, and they said, oh, I know you, they don't know you at all. They, mm. they knew a version of you, a younger person who you were back then, mm-hmm. but you're not that person anymore. Like you're different. And I agree with that. You know, they were Facebook friends of mine. And when we were kids, my sister and I and my mum, we used to be with these people all the time, but I was a little kid back then. Mm. And the lady, she's the same age as my mum, I commented on something a while back and she said, oh, I know you well, Glenn. And I thought, you don't know 35 years of me. Yeah. Like you haven't seen me really much at all in 35 years. A, I'm not a 15-year-old boy anymore. And a lot of shit's happened during that time. You don't mm. know me at all. Mm. You know, like you knew me as a child. So- Perception is a funny thing. Mm. I think we like to control other people and our dogs by believing we know and we're sort of in charge. Mm. We're in control. With that type of assumption, I think a lot of things can go wrong in those areas. And it's certainly sometimes where I've had to eat a bag of dicks myself because 
people have said to me, what's your thoughts on this? And I've had a very puffed up view on it, but sometimes it's not right. Mm. You know, like he can be close to the mark. And I think that's what you should lead with is say, here are my thoughts, not here are the facts. Mm. Here are my thoughts. Here's what I'm thinking is going on or here is what I see through my eyes. Because funny thing is the human face is seen differently through different eyes and people. Mm. And that's a scientific fact. Like Mm. it's been published many times. I've read things like that online and I've always thought on that. It is different. We do see different things. Like you can ask 10 different people what they see and each person has a modified response on what they actually saw at the time. Mm. Crime scene people do that all the time. Like they have a variation. Mm. There's an average of what they saw, but there's still the variations. You're thinking, well, that's not how exactly I saw it. Yeah. But they were standing at a different angle. They saw different shadows. They saw different lighting. Yeah. You know, there's a whole bunch of different things. There were different things in the way that happened during that time. Have you seen that movie, My Cousin Vinny? Yeah. Where they get all the people coming in and Joe Pesci. Mm-hmm. And he's asking them all the questions. He said, you saw this happen through this dirty window, through this rusty piece of shit, fly screen. You saw this actually going on. And the guy's going, he goes, well, maybe you didn't, huh? Because people, sometimes they want to see what they want to see. It's amazing. Yeah, that gets even more complex, that topic, when you then talk about the telling of things and Mm. how embellishments and how non-permanent memories are, how malleable memories are. Well, I think Um, we've talked about this in the past, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, mate, I did a a course when I was in the army that actually terrified me, blew my mind about how firsthand accounts are fucking useless and Mm. even very often video is not accurate as well. Like a video is just looking at the light that a camera sensor captured and you can manipulate that. The example they use on the course, it fucking terrified me. It's just this very basic setup of a guy that walks into a room and steals a Coke can, Mm -hmm. right? And did he steal it? Yes. From that angle, he very clearly stole it, right? But then there's another camera angle and it's just the way that the lighting is and there's a little lead shelf. Like he never touched the fucking Coke can, right? And they made it look like he did from one angle and then from another, it didn't happen at all. And so, you know, like it's not necessarily reality. It's perception. Everything is perception. Like reality sort of doesn't exist. That's a bigger philosophical. Oh my God. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, we could get really crazy about that. But like everybody's reality is perceived by them and it can be really different. Yeah. It's a bit scary. Hey, on philosophical stuff, let's jump a couple here Mm because Holly Sieb says, I hope I said your last name correctly, Holly. This is on the philosophical end, but doing what we ask of our dogs to do, they place, we meditate. We ask them to be brave, but are we brave? We ask them to do the work. Do we do the work? Deep end, I admit, But something I've thought about over the years and a concept that really has strengthened my relationship with my dog and food for thought. Well, that really bleeds into Cameron's question. Yeah. How much do you know your dog? Mm. Like Holly and Cameron, it's almost like they've been kindred spirits in that one because those two really align themselves together. Yeah. I think as well, though, like I think she's talking about a lot of people hold their dogs really accountable for stuff, right? Yeah. And, you know, how accountable do you hold yourself to the same things? Mm. And I think that feeds back to Jazz's, you know, the topic that me and Jazz were talking about is a lot of people want things like, I want you to do this dog, right? Like I'm sick of you pulling on the leash. I need this to happen. You need to change your behavior. Mm. 
But in order for the dog to change its behavior permanently, you too need to change your behavior permanently. Yep. Right. It's one of the things like I see people, it is odd and there is, I know there's reasons for this. Like people don't look after themselves as well as they look after others. I know that there's like a guilt instinct to that and you, you know, people are martyrs and all kinds of stuff. But one of the things that's really interesting to me is like in the raw feeding community, people can be fucking militant about what you feed your dog. Mm. Right. Like to the point where you say you feed your dog kibble and you're the devil himself. Meanwhile, those people smashing burgers and eating shit themselves. Yep. Right. And that's really common, like really super common that, you know, the dog has to eat better than the person. Mm -hmm. And exactly as she says, like this place training, right? Like I've forced, there's loads of people who force the dog to be on a place and do nothing for a long period of time. And it's like, you're a social creature. You're out there doing all these things. You have a purpose bred social creature, Mm -hmm. right? Like thousands of years of not evolution, engineering turn that dog into a social creature that wants to be with you and we're forcing them to be on a, on a place. Yep. We see that a lot with health and fitness as well. People are holding their dogs to a, a level of health and fitness that they don't achieve themselves. So I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting topic. That's for sure. Yes. It's an interesting topic. It's a very deep one. Once again, it's almost one of those topics that could almost be an entire podcast mm. because there are uh, so many layers to that and so many considerations. I think that's probably why Socrates came up with that statement of know thyself. Mm. I think he really sat with that over a period of time. And I've seen people agonize with this over a period of time when they're starting to get self-philosophical where they're saying, who am I? Mm. I remember you and I having this conversation a while ago and we were talking about Kung Fu Panda 3 Mm -hmm. when he was asking himself that question throughout the entire movie. The entire time he kept saying, who am I? And he's looking at images of himself in the water and he kept asking himself over again and, and it took him quite a journey and quite a lot of agony and pain and separation from a lot of things that were happening in his life and the reconnection of his family to finally find out who he was. He wasn't just one person. He was something to everybody, but that was ultimately the combination of who he became. Mm. And that's when you look at yourself, like you're different things to different people, like you with your son, mm. you know, like you've got two sons now. You're a different person to both of those people. You're a different person to Jane. You're a different person to me. Mm. You know, the people that listen to us on this podcast, there are people who know a version of us, but they don't know the entire us. Mm -hmm. And you're a lot of things to a lot of different entities and a lot of different fields and applications. Mm. There is a lot of you that is capable. There is a lot of you that is yet to be capable. And I know that sounds like I'm getting very ethereal with it, but the reality is, is that's who you are. You're Mm. a lot of things to different people. Yeah. And there's a lot of you that's untapped. There's a lot of potential inside all of us that you haven't considered yet. I'm 50 years old, never really played with a musical instrument before, starting to smash around with guitars and finding that I'm becoming competent in something that I never really thought I could do. Mm-hmm. Even when I started, I thought, oh, I just can't do this. And there's things that are happening now, which I just never gave consideration to that I would be able to do that. But you can amaze yourself. Like mm. there's so many things that people are picking up into things that they've never done before. I remember reading a story years ago when computers really sort of started to get into the field of things. And there was an old guy in Greece who was basically a sheep herder. And he thought, I'm sick of this life. I want to change my stars. And he got into computers and networking and IT when it sort of started to get off the ground. And he just started to make millions of dollars in something that he had really no experience at all. He was a guy in his like 50s and suddenly he started to make more money than he'd ever seen in his life. His parents and the people in his village had ever made. 
suddenly because he decided to have a go at something else. Mm. He decided to change his stars, try something different, rather than saying, oh, I can't do that. I have no experience in that. I'm not that person. He decided to say, well, I don't know it yet, but Mm. I can have a go at it. You know, and I find a lot of people do that with dog training. I've had people who you would look at them and think they're all thumbs and two left feet and they would have no real good feel for dog training and yet they're amazing. Mm. Not everybody. But some people are just amazing at it. They just take to it like a duck to water. Mm. Suddenly they have this ability to communicate with another species and they do it so well that it's almost like they are talking the same language. Mm. Like the dog understands English and they understand how to speak canine because effectively they do. They've trained themselves to understand each other and have a comprehension where they can map out a different lifestyle for each other. Mm. Whereas beforehand, no clue. Yeah. I think to speak a little bit more to Holly's point here about holding ourselves accountable, you know, within the dog human relationship and are Mm. you doing the things that you're asking of the dog? Something I've harped on on for a long time is, you know, a lot of people want precision from their dog work and it relates back to what we're saying with Jazz. I think a lot of people want precision from their dog work, but are incapable of being precise themselves. Yeah. Right. And I think a big part of dog training actually requires training without the dog. Right? And practicing the steps and practicing the movements and learning to interact in a way where the dog doesn't have to be a part of your mistakes. Mm. Right, So getting good in the way that you move and marking and timing and all that kind of stuff, there's a lot that can be done absent the dog. Yep. Uh, and doing that kind of work before you bring in the dog. The other is, I think, you know, holding yourself accountable for mistakes in training as well, which I think... It, no, it's not just in the working dog community. It, it's across sort of everything. You see a lot of people who basically kind of write their dog off as being incapable of something, right? And it's, in fact, not the dog. It's the combination of the dog and that person. Mm. And I think that it can be very easy to say, well, that dog's not going to do it. I had a pet dog client a long time ago that they had this shepherd and basically were like, had given up trying to fix it, essentially. And they had a lot of like reactivity issues and that kind of stuff. We're talking about with the next dog, will you be able to help us? And I was like, no, no, I'm not. Because you're not doing the work on this dog. I know the idea that you want to start from scratch, right? I know that you want to get another dog and and have none of these issues. But it's not like your dog is so far gone that we can't fix these problems. Mm. It's that you don't want to. And that same amount of not wanting to is going to lead to the same amount of not wanting to put in the work that prevents those problems, Mm. right? Fixing them and preventing them are very similar. Like they're they're different like physically, but the idea is the same. Like it's time and effort, right? And so it's like, I'm not prepared to do that for you. I'm not going to be the trainer if you get that second dog. If you put in the work in this dog and we start seeing progress, then for sure, I'm your guy. Mm. But I'm not going to be complicit in just kind of giving up on this dog and starting fresh, right? Yep. And in the working dog world, we see a lot of that, people blaming the dog for their mm. inability to be successful in what they're doing. And it's, you know, very often not the dog. We see people, you know, get rid of dogs without giving anybody else an opportunity. And I think that usually is a, a strong signal that there's an issue between them and the dog and they don't want to be found lacking by having the dog go to someone else, right? That's, I think, something that we see fairly common in the industry. Mm. And so I think that, Another one in the working dog space is, you know, people want drive, right? Like heaps more drive, more and more drive. I want the driviest dog. And I think one of the confusion cuts drive more than anything. Yep. I'm in the process of trying to make a video. I'm, I'm, I've got so many videos I'm trying to make at the moment to demonstrate points, but I end up just explaining them here anyway, and then sort of they fall off the wagon. But one of them is we hear a lot of the rhetoric about how obedience kills drives, especially in working dogs, right? Like the more obedience the dog has, the less drive it's going to express, especially in the bite work and that mm. kind of stuff. 
And in the old school community, like of Crush the Dog, very old yank and crank style training, that was a, a pretty strong mantra or was that obedience kills drive when the obedience is taught that way. And now that obedience, even amongst balanced trainers, is mostly taught very positive reinforcement, mm. most balanced trainers are either going to be teaching 100% positive reinforcement and then using some punishment at the end to you know stop some things, or they're going to be teaching it like Nipopo style, like a balance of negative reinforcement and positive reinforcement along the way. Mm. But for the most part, everybody's on board with like motivational obedience. Mm. And we see a less of a reduction in drive, but still- some because of it. And I don't think that it's, uh, I personally, this is my personal opinion on it. I don't think that obedience, no matter how you teach it really has anything to do with a reduction in drive. Confusion is what leads to a reduction in drive and and, perceived punishment. Yeah. But if the, if the dog, I don't even think that because I think that if the dog, if punishment is used effectively and the dog knows how to avoid it, it won't diminish drive at all once that is. Yeah, but confusion is punishment. Yeah. But so that's what I mean in that if the dog isn't 100% sure on what's being asked, now he has to temper himself and be like, because he can be concerned about making mistakes. And how could you not call that perceived punishment? Because the dog is perceiving that this is not the right thing to do. Yeah. But even if he's just not sure. So even if a dog, like, cause I've, I've witnessed it and I've done it to my own dog is yep. even when the dog never receives any physical pressure mm-hmm. or never has anything taken from him, if he's not a hundred percent sure, if he's still experimenting with behavior, that will cut drive, mm-hmm. right? Because he'll be like, I'm not a hundred percent sure on this. Even if he's doing the right thing and you reinforce him, if in the process of doing it, he's second guessing himself in any way, shape or form that will diminish this power throughout. Mm. And I think that more often than not, when we see a big reduction in drive and the person has also got a lot of obedience on the dog or a lot of control work, it's that that control work is is there, but the dog isn't necessarily clear on it so mm. much. And I think that you see people who have like incredible obedience and no reduction in drive, right? Because the dog is so clear on what he needs to do. I do believe that clarity definitely is yeah, and, is and key. And it depends on what you want from the dog. Like say in IGP, for example, it's very rare. Like if you're training for that, it's very rare that you're going to ask something peculiar of your dog. Mm-hmm. In He's going to learn the pattern, even though you shouldn't pattern train, but the dog is going to understand these are the limited things that I'm going to be required to do in my full expression of drive. And it's pretty clear which one you want me to do. No problem. But then you get into more complicated games, PSA, Mondio, that kind of stuff, more complicated like on the field for the dog or for what happened to me the other day where I needed to give a complex demo to someone and there was a range of skill sets that my dog knew. They asked me, can you do this? And it was for a bite reinforcement. It was a demo that I was doing for a job. And I was like, my dog knows all those skills, but not in a sequence like this, not in this environment. He will be able to do it, mm. but it caused me a very clear reduction in drive because he was like, hey, I know what you're asking, I think, and I'm going to do them to the best of my ability. But he's second guessing himself along the way because I, like, even I was overwhelmed by what we were asking for. It was nothing over the top. Like I wouldn't put my dog in a bad situation. But as a result, tonight, he's just going on the bungee and he's just doing uncontrolled bite work because I have to bring back that power, mm. right? Like because – and it was not that I didn't I didn't use any corrections. He was nude when I was given the demo. There was no compulsion. There was no consequences. He got it right. We Everything went fine. But it was very detailed and very complex. And he had to think a lot. And then he, like, he wasn't 100% sure, like, I know exactly what to do here. Let's power through it and do it. Because that causes no reduction in drive, in my opinion. Mm. But I think once you start letting the dog, like you put the dog in a position where he's like, I think this is what I'm meant to do. 
that thought process reduces drive. And when you have to have him start making decisions as well, that's going to reduce drive. And that's Hicks law, you know, like Hicks law is you get a light and a button and I measure your response time. I say, when that light turns on, you hit the button and I can build a baseline of response. Then I put a second button and I say to you, when that light turns on, push one of those buttons. I don't care which one. You'll be slower to push either button because a decision has to be made, Mm. right? And I think that's what we sort of observe in that really high drive work is I don't think it's compulsion that slows dogs down. I don't think that it's obedience that slows dogs down. I don't think that it's like all the things that we sort of worry about in the past. I personally think it's confusion. Yeah. Okay. That's something to mull around with. I think it's a combination of a lot of those points. Mm -hmm. Confusion definitely being a high tier in it. I would say that perception, confusion, definitely, and not understanding your role which is part of confusion Yeah, because I've seen times I'll take ladybug. For example, she's so fucking ridiculously drivey with things. That's how she end up exploding her back. Mm-hmm. And the only time that I ever see her break out of some of her manic drives is when I enter the scene and she's not sure of her role in the situation. Mm-hmm. Like you can start to seeing her becoming agitated and a little panicky mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily related to punishment. She no. just doesn't understand. She's confused. Yeah. She's confused. What's my role? Mm-hmm. Are you supposed to be doing this or am I supposed to be doing this? Sometimes she'll start doing like a mouth chatter where she starts shaking of her jaw and then she'll start running around backwards and forwards. Whereas if I'm not in the scene, She's thinking, oh, yeah, I'm in guns and all. Mm-hmm. I'm just going straight in. Yeah. But as soon as I enter the picture, it's a new variable. It's a new variable. What's my role? I'm yeah. confused. Yeah. Yeah. My evidence for like the way I, the reason I feel like that is I see some really compulsive dog trainers, right? Like who have been around a long time and are really successful with their dogs and yeah. they're really good at it. And the dog, while his learning experience may be somewhat unpleasant, yeah. when he has learned it, he's got it. And, and you see that the drive, like during the learning, the dog, your drive may be diminished, right? Because he's like, shit, this is a very high stakes game that I'm playing here. They're still happy to play the game because they have sufficient drive to do it. But the dog's like a mistake can cost me fucking dearly, right? Like there's a lot of compulsion involved here. Mm. But if the, if the handler, the trainer is very good in their application of that compulsion and they are consistent, accurate, and fair, then the dog, once he's figured it out, he's like, there's no more risk to me. Mm. I know what to do. I'm 100%, I'm good to go. And that drive, you know, like comes back in abundance. So and you don't think they can reduce the, the ceiling? They maybe could, yeah, for sure. I, I think that happens because what we're measuring is still what we see. Yeah. The problem is, is when you talk to a lot of trainers, they're talking about what they saw as the early potential of the dog to the potential of the dog now. And it's mm-hmm. a measurement of ceiling height. Yeah. Because you're kind of looking at it. And this is what I've seen in my dogs before where I haven't necessarily seen an abundance of compulsion, mm. but I've seen like a reduction of the dog's capabilities and the dog never seems to recover from it. It never seems to be able to punch through that ceiling. Yeah. Like its ceiling has been reduced to a new level where now you're looking at the dog and thinking, what happened to you? Yeah. You know, like what happened in that gap area? I, I 100% agree that that's a possibility. It is a possibility. Um, it's not it's, but it's not an absolution. But it's it's unmeasurable. That's a Schrodinger's cat problem yep. because it's like testing a match, mm. right? Like it's done so you can't see what would have happened if it wasn't done. I think that's one of the, that's one of the issues with getting to really pointy end dog training, right, is because dogs are individuals and having done yeah. something changes the way it would go. So you can't get two dogs and say, like, do do this to him, like have a control group. You, you yeah. really can't have a control group because you can – and not be as accurate. Yeah, big picture stuff, easy peasy, lemon squeezy, right? Mm. But really minute stuff, like me and you right now have two identical laptops in front of us, Yep. right? 
we can do something to mine and then like install a program and then run the same benchmark test and see whether my computer is faster than slower than yours. And that would be accurate, right? We can tell whether that program did anything, but there's no two dogs that are identical and we can't do something to one dog and not to another and then find out what the consequence was. We can't talk to them. Yeah, but even the observable consequences, mm. like they're not, they're never identical. There's no, there's no such thing as two identical dogs. Mm. And so when you're trying to measure, like you know, by what degree did we reduce the drive in this dog? Did we bring down the ceiling because of what we did to it? Well, we never knew where it was anyway. Right? Yeah. So and the and he doesn't have a clone, and, and even and there are dog clones, and even they are not identical. Right? Like. Yeah, I've seen information on those. I've been meaning to talk to those guys and get them on the podcast. Like there's there's certain behavioral traits that the there's three clones, right? They've got the original dog and three clones of him in mm-hmm. a real working dog kennel. And they have interesting behavioral traits in that they eat similarly. And when they go into bed, they spin around in a circle similarly. And where they tend to sleep in their kennel is similar. But they have separate drives, right? Like as their experiences you know, yeah. lead them to have personal uh, preferences on things, yep. even though they are clones of each other. Yeah, they were never socially raised the exact same way. Yeah. So like that's their timeline is is still modified. Yeah. So even then, it's really hard to get a gauge. That's kind of like the butterfly effect in real yeah, life. Yeah, totally. Right. Mm, yeah. So that's then it's really hard to get a gauge on the inputs that I've given this dog, Mm. what effect has that had on Mm. what the dog could have been? Big picture, very easy. We observe that. But little picture things, the minute details, we'll never know. It's a a testing a match issue. Mm. I like thinking about that stuff though. Look, it can take you to some great places and some dark places. Yeah. I remember in earlier episodes, we used to talk about what kept us up at night. Things like that can actually make your eyes pop open in the middle of the night. Yeah, but in a good way. That That's the kind of stuff that I like sort of playing out in my head. And I'm convinced, certainly with a lot of the dogs that I observe, confusion is the main drive killer. It's not compulsion. And it's not doing too much of anything. It's confusion. The moment that, The moment the dog is not sure, he will be less powerful. Yep. I think. That's not a fact. That's that's the facts according to Pat and they're self Yeah, facts. but that's what I'm saying. We're not talking about absolutions. We're just talking yeah. about theories. Yeah. You know, the only way that we really get better conclusions of this is when we test them out. Mm. That was part of the fun when we had Boyd on the show a while ago, but actually being there in the days when there were you know, like I'm talking about 20 trainers with all our dogs, mm-hmm. is whenever we started fighting with each other well not fighting, but when we were having discussions with each other and testing theories what we used to say is, well, let's get the dogs. Let's test it to the best of our knowledge on what we can actually do now and observe now. And therefore, we were able to see more accuracy in what the dogs were capable of doing. Because, again, that gets into that realm of thinking and feeling. Mm -hmm. Like, we can do a lot of the thinking, but we can't do all the feeling. Mm. What we have to do is prepare the dog to put it in a circumstance and saying, what happens when we do this to you? Mm. Okay, it's like if we introduce this stimuli, how are you going to respond to it? That's the only time it's measurable when we mm. can actually see behavior. Yeah. The feeling and the thinking side, that's inside your head. Yeah, we guess. Like whatever you're thinking and feeling right now, right now in this very instance, I have no idea of. Yeah. There could be 20 different things going off in your head right now and there is no way for me to know until you do a behavior. Mm. And even then, it could be contradictory to what you're thinking and feeling. Yeah. It's amazing really, isn't it? And it's how it can drag you deep in the weeds. It's intriguing. It should intrigue people. They should be asking themselves the question of why is it so? Yeah. And how do I manipulate it? Yeah. <laughs> hey, so we've probably got time for one more. Sure. Dallas Berkowitz, this is an interesting one. Yep. Enrichments for dogs. Have we gone too far with making it hard for dogs to enjoy a meal? 
And then comments under that, Beth says, yes. And also that enrichment toys shouldn't replace actual interaction, training, play with your dog. And comment under that, Christine replies to her and says, yeah, for real. I joined a group called, I won't say the name of it, expecting new ways to enrich my dog's life with activities with me. Instead, it was literally all people asking for ways to get their dogs to entertain themselves. That's intriguing because it's literally how we started the show off talking about pet dog people. Yeah. How do I minimize the time that I have to do anything with my dog? Yeah. And how do I get you just to pre-program all these things into my dog so I can basically, you know, it's like the movie Click with Adam Sandler. I know I use movie references a lot, but he just wanted to fast forward through his life and get through all the boring bits so he could find out what his promotion was going to lead to. And that's literally what people want. They want the remote control that's got all the pre-programmed exercises in for the dog that they can just go click, 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 and all the problems are solved for them. Mm. It happens with feeding as well. It happens in lifestyle as well. Like I love I love the thought, and I always did as a young guy, of having big muscles and going to the gym and stuff like that. But then when you realize this is like a part-time job, like I've got to be involved in the gym every morning, day in, day out, and skip all the nice food that you enjoy eating, reduction in alcohol and lots of rules and lots of things in place. But the people who are the purest, the same in the dog training world, in the sporting dog worlds, they get there because that's important to them. Well, what I'll say on that, you know, when I was training a lot of pet dogs, I used to talk a lot about enrichment, right? Mm. That was That's a big part of being a pet dog trainer, yeah. right? Convincing people, like, make this dog's life better by letting him do these things. And, you know, I big advocate for Kongs and I was never a hide the treats in the yard guy. I never went that far, but I certainly gave plenty of people strategies. Give him a job. Yeah, give yeah. the dog a job. Well, not job. Like what I, because these were you know, just average pet dog people. I certainly gave a lot of people strategies on how to keep their dog entertained, yep. right? How to keep their dog out to entertain themselves. And now that I really deal just mostly in people who are training dogs to do stuff, but I still do sometimes get, you know, people, anyone can book a Skype session with me or a, a Zoom session and there's all kinds of people. And when it's a pet dog person having problems, I look through their webcam and I can see their dog running around. The dog jumps on them, licks in their face, and the dog's always causing issues, right? Mm. When people book a session with me and they're like, hey, just having some grip issues, wonder if you can help me, uh, hoping you could get my sits a little faster, you know, that kind of stuff. Yep. I see the dog in the background laying perfectly chilled out on the bed, right? And not like on a place. I'm talking like a free dog laying on the floor doing its own thing. And I think that sort of speaks to enrichment in that, those dogs are enriched. Like it's just not something that's in my sphere anymore. And I know Dallas who was asking the question, you know, she uh, is at the doggy daycare in, in, um, in Canberra that we went down and interviewed her there and she deals a lot in rescue. So yep. she's deep in the weeds mm. in pet dog training, she like is. deep in the weeds of it. Yep. And that enrichment's a big part of it. And I think, you know, it's one of the things I was having a conversation uh, a little while ago with someone and we're talking about, uh, you know, when you get the wor- the dog in the wrong home, Right. And, you know, the dog's destructive and causing all kinds of giant headache issues, barking incessantly and all those kinds of things. Mm. And people say, do you think we can, you know, what can we do about it? And I'm like, oh yeah, totally. We can, we can fix this. We just need to do some training. And they're like, well, what kind of training? It's like, any, doesn't matter. Mm. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean? And it's like, well, we can address this problem if you want. Uh, or we can teach the dog some obedience or you could go and do um, like a sport. Uh, you could do anything. It doesn't matter. Some training is going to fix this issue. Yep. Uh, and it doesn't matter what kind of training. We could teach this dog to do anything. We could teach this dog to do tricks. We could compete in a sport. Anything you want is going to fix this issue. And they look at you kind of bewildered like, 
how could such a broad stroke fix the issue? And it's like the dog's bored out of his fucking yeah. mind. That's all. And idle, if, idle hands are the devil's tools. Yeah, and he just needs something to do. And it doesn't matter what it is, he just needs something to do. Yep. And in the past, for sure, I was, you know, I gave people advice on ways to, you know, have their dog entertain themselves. But I haven't, I haven't, that hasn't crossed my mind in a long time, mm. right? Giving someone advice on how to have their dog entertain themselves. What I have, you know, and it's not like on purpose. It's not like I decided one day I'm not going to do that anymore. But for the most part, I find myself not having to give that advice because of the, the training advice that I'm giving people. Like, do we just train, train, do this, and that your dog's good. That half an hour a day, and it's, it does you, you know perfectly relate to what we're talking about at the start. But in regards to people who are motivated, not mm. that don't want to do it, and then the enrichment piece is the piece of like this will get the dog off your back. Yep. Right. It's like, you no, know, do some very intense activities with your dog. And then the dog will flatten out in the rest of the time because he's not pushing for those activities. Mm. The double edged sword is that he come the time when he environmentally realizes, you know, it's five o'clock, it's time to do stuff. Then you're going to get a very intense version of your dog pushing for that time. Mm. And it does, it does tie back to what we're saying in that that's the blurry line between sessions and lifestyle. Right, like some behavioral issues are caused by a lack of sessions, and and some very intense training will fix those behavioral issues, mm. but some are not, and and anything that can go into that enrichment category usually will go into the category of like just train the dog, do anything with the dog, it doesn't matter, just do any kind of training, and if you don't want to get involved, you got a bad back, you're in a wheelchair, whatever, buy yourself a treat and train, set out the target stick, and teach the dog to touch the target stick, and and do hide that thing from him, and you've you've then taught him detection with the target stick, hide it somewhere easy and make him find it. He touches it. You hit the button on the treat and train. Yep. Very little, very little requirement from you. And that will make your dog very happy if you implement it correctly. Yeah. That's the the lowest form of interaction with the dog up to the highest form of interaction is like, let's get the tug out and let's start playing the game. Mm. Right. That can fix a dog that who is pissed off, but it ain't going to stop him pulling on the leash when it's time to walk out to the car. Like that's a lifestyle problem that you're going to have to change separately. That same dog, he might become more calm in the house. He might become way more manageable, but he's still going to water ski you to the car to when you go places because that's a training issue and that's a lifestyle training issue. What was the original question? Can you read the question again? Yeah. Dallas says, enrichment for dogs. Have we gone too far with making it hard for dogs to enjoy a meal? Is she talking about like a feeding issue where people are becoming too... No, I think that in some circles now, there's a lot of those enrichment things. And look, we've been responsible for part of that, like pushing the box and the the snuffle mats and Mm. that kind of stuff, right? Where people use the meal time as like, I will make it difficult for the dog to get this meal so that then the dog is pursuing and overcoming and facing some kind of challenge in order to be fed, like a, a fair challenge, not a problematic one. Well, if you're talking about dopamine, then no. Well, yeah, good point. Mm. Yeah. Making the struggle creates more dopamine, which yeah. makes the dog feel better about the situation. So if science is going to answer that question, no. If the dog feels better about it, then there may be a, a better version of themselves though. Well, like they get out what they needed. So, you know, one of the things you see is people scatter feeding dogs mm. and therefore the dog has to use his nose, search around, find the food. And for sure, I've seen that, you know, bring a dog down, you know, like a jittery dog, mm. some scatter feeding can calm them down, level them out and yep. entertain them. And for slow a them down and stop them from gutting all their food in one, you yeah. know, like suctioning the food down like a vacuum cleaner. But just to give you an example, there was a client during the week that I did a online consultation with and it was nose works related. And majority of the work that I was seeing with the dog was actually quite good, except the dog was complacent in its behavior. Mm -hmm. 
I did speak to the handler of the dog. They probably listened to this, so they, you know, I don't want to out them or tell them that they're doing a terrible job because they actually weren't. What was observable was the dog was just becoming very complacent with the level of work that it was doing because he was always going home to 70% of his food in his bowl. Mm-hmm. So he just knew that I don't really have to work hard anymore. And as I said, he was going to get paid anyway. So what I did say to the owner of the dog, have you tried reducing the amount of food that you're actually giving the dog? And they said, well, yes. In the original training I did, I was told to take all the food away and only utilize it in training. They said, but then he became frantic. Mm. And I said, well, that's a good point. And in the notes that I wrote, which was legit, I suggested that that wouldn't be a good idea for this dog because, you know, it's a springer, it's part of that spaniel family, Mm -hmm. and they generally seem to jump into that manic mode when they get too worried about the consequences of what's happening in the behaviour. So I did suggest to him, I said, look, what you really need to do is find out how to have the perfect amount of food in training and what's left over at the end to create a more flow state of mind with the dog, Mm. to get that dog in the Goldilocks mindset where it's not too much where the dog is just becoming complacent, not too little where the dog is becoming manic. But as I said, flow state where the dog is going, I understand I need to stay on track here. Otherwise it could become uncomfortable for me. Mm. There's always extremes when you lead back to, Dallas's original question, there are extremes in everything we do. You know, I did a quote a while ago, which some people have challenged me on, where I've said the best dog trainers in the world don't feed out of a dog bowl. But people forget about the concept of jackpotting as well. Mm. Like they forget about the fact that you can just give the dog the entire amount of what's in your treat pouch. The minute the dog, well, the second the dog has displayed, let's say, the behavior algorithm of what you wanted to set up on the day, and the dog gave it to you expectantly or unexpectedly, you can immediately just click the dog and go, bang, you can have it all. Mm. Everything that's there, you can have the immediate. So people have asked me that question. Like they've said, so you're just saying that you just give the dog what's there in the the treat pouch? I said, no, you can do multiple sessions a day. Mm. You can even break this up into different shaping procedure in the chain. You can work on one criteria independently and then another criteria independent of that. Mm. That's fine. It's not a problem. You can do that. And the dog can get all its nutritional calories that it needs. Even if the session is short because the dog is exceptionally doing well in the training session, what's the problem? Mm. You mark, you jackpot the dog, you give the dog everything. The session is over. You're finished. It doesn't matter if it took you an hour to set the scenario up. If the dog has exceeded expectations and done exceptionally well or is heading in the right direction and you're happy to jackpot that, do it. Mm. Feed the dog. Yes, sometimes I do see people that I think – they're going to high extremes or maybe they don't understand what it is to feed the dog correctly during a training session. Like it's messing with their head a little bit and their interpretation of what they've heard, maybe us or maybe another trainer online, they've gone away and put that interpretation into practice. And yes, it has become difficult, awkward and complex in the training strategy that they're trying to implement with the dog. Yeah. Reinforcement schedules is a giant topic. And I think, I am for sure guilty of using language that resulted in people training with food too much and for too long. Mm -hmm. And I think this is an issue of like training is like a pendulum or the way I explain training is like a pendulum, right? Because you swing too far one way and then you go back all the way the other way. And so what I found early in my career of teaching groups Mm. was too many people that did exactly that, right? So they just were not good at play, not good at reinforcing via a game, right? 
And I sort of decided that there's there's plenty of other people that teach that. And that is, I think, the you know, the real method on how to do that, like really getting good at playing with a dog. That's a seminar in itself. And I'm gonna leave that to people like Jay to teach, right? Like that's a whole that's yep. a whole weekend. Yep. Right. And then so in my mind, I made the decision what I can quickly, in half an hour, I can explain to people the best way to reinforce with food. Right. So like bang for buck. I can be most effective by explaining to people how to train with food better. I can be really good at that. And I can say to people exactly like you just said, you know, like, Hey, don't feed him from a bowl. He needs to know that he's on a variable schedule. And if he knows that he feeds at five o'clock in the afternoon, then your food has very little value to him mm. here. So you got to, you know, he can't eat, you know, if he's not going to take it now, we're not going to give it to him then. And, and things that are very true. And what I have found looking at the people who I've given that information to, you know, I track people. I watch people who are, who, you know, ask me lots of questions and like I track them online. Mm. I, I want to see what's going on with their dog. I want to see the, the advice that I gave and how it pans out. And what I often see is when people radically change the way that they train with food and they go on to that existential food, the way that I sort of had explained, they get very quickly, very good. Right. Mm. But they hit a fucking ceiling really quickly. Right. And I think that as we know, most dogs and speaking generally, most dogs will work longer. They'll put a bigger chain of behaviors together and they'll work with more intensity mm. for games than they will with food. Mm. And I think that quite a lot of people who I gave information to, I see them, they, they get such good success. They see such improvements so fast by radically changing the way they use food, which is very easy to do, that they don't even want to sort of go past that and they hit a glass ceiling for sure. They work too much on absolution rather than flexibility. Yeah, and then people come and watch me train. Like I haven't trained with food. Fuck, the last time I trained with food was when I taught that circle thing mm. that I and there's a whole video of me doing it and I did it for one session. That was it. Like my dog just eats because I'm not training anything where I need that food level of arousal with him. Mm. Oh, that's not true. During when I had COVID, I did a couple of little food sessions in the house just because we had nothing else to do. Mm -hmm. But for the rest of the time, the dog eats from the bowl. And I think the issue of reinforcement and schedules and type and nature and that kind of stuff. And this is sort of straying a little bit from Dallas's question, but I think it's a feathering and you've got to sort of decide what's the reinforcer that serves me and reinforcers relate to levels of arousal, right? So mm. like, what is the level of arousal that serves me? And if it's a behavior that my dog knows, what's the level of arousal that is going to allow him to learn. And when I use that reinforcer, it's going to be reinforcing and going to make him do it more mm. versus when my dog knows the behavior, what's the reinforcer that will bring on the level of arousal that will make the dog want to do it again next time. And then it gets even more tricky, and this is the stuff I like to think about and implement, is the reinforcer you use today will affect the behavior tomorrow, not today, right? Mm. Unless the dog knows what the reinforcer is, like it's an obvious decoy, something like that. Mm. This was really fun conversations that me and Jazz had when we were training the Fred and Frank to track, right? Because they're both really different dogs. They're brothers. They're both really differently motivated dogs, and one likes tracking. He fucking likes it, right? Mm. And so- how to reinforce him? Who gives a shit? He doesn't really care to be reinforced on the He's track either way. Doing the work. Yeah, the mm. track is it. Yep. And he has a very high food drive, like borderline to the point where if that dog was in a pet home, he would have been a food aggressive dog, right? Mm. Like he was a very, very high food drive. And for the most part, we say that's great, only at the came at the cost of clarity sometimes, mm. right? So then that we had to manage that and temper it. And sometimes on the track, so he loves to track and he loves to eat, combine those two things together, we lose the dog in clarity, mm -hmm. right? Whereas his brother, Fred, he tracks for what he gets. He has no 
distinct love for tracking. He's actually probably better at it. You know, he's as good, but he does it for what he gets at the end of it. Yep. And so we then have to go, okay. And he really likes biting and he's a very good biter, right? Mm. Not that they're both good, but he's fucking really good and really loves it. So he gets less interested in tracking. So we go, okay, we'll set up a really easy track that he can't fuck up tomorrow and he'll get a bite at the end of it. And then we get a week of amazing tracking with this expectation of a bite at the end before he realizes like, oh, it's not there. You know, so like, it's just not simple. And and I think that that's what I'm saying. And when we talk on here and when you're talking to people who you don't see their dog, you give advice that is somewhat general and serves everyone well, but probably doesn't serve anyone great. It's not specific. Yeah. It's not catered to the individual. Let me just jump back onto that tracking situation. Something that really tested the theory for me was years ago when I was working with the Schutzen Clubs in Melbourne before they became IPO, IPG clubs, just for people who are jumping in this whole paradigm of where the lineage Mm -hmm. went there. I remember working with this particular handler and their dog, and the dog was a very food-motivated dog. And we're using food on the tracks, you know, step food, step food, step Mm -hmm. food. So it had got beyond that with this dog. Primarily, that's the way we taught it. We taught the scent pad. We taught the food. It wasn't the same dick style method that you guys have been using. But the dog was working well. We got to every five steps, there was a small portion of food. What was intriguing to me was I was watching the dog on the track and the dog was tracking like it was a locomotive on tracks. You know, it was hitting the corners accurately so well that it almost looked like animated when Mm -hmm. the dog was doing it. And it would get to, you know, it would find all the articles that was on there. I think there was a bit of wood and a bit of leather and it was doing it beautifully. Got to the end, you know, the dog got the reward, got the play. When we went back over the track, we realized that the dog had missed, like not missed, but deliberately left a lot of the food that was on the track Mm. because that no longer became important to the dog. Yeah, it's not reinforced. That fucked with my mind. Yeah. I didn't understand that then. I was too young in my training. Like- That was one of those who am I questions because that really forced me to reanalyze everything that I then knew about track trailing Mm -hmm. because I thought the dog was doing it for the food. The dog wasn't. The dog was doing it for some of the food, but it gave a fuck about most of it. And this really became later in life learning more and more about dopamine and how it actually affects dogs. And even later in life in learning Sapolsky's work, when you're starting to look at it and you're thinking, holy shit, when I really thought I had a handle on it and then I thought I had a handle on it again, along comes this theory, which makes you go, fuck. Yeah. Now it's falling into place even better to why that dog did it. But the dog also wanted to get to the end so it could have its game. Yeah. Like as you suggested before, it definitely wanted to do this track. It loved the track. And I thought the dog loved it because it loved the food, but the dog loved it because it was an activity that it learned to enjoy. Yeah. Well, and it's probably a big genetic component in the same way a lot of people who- I wouldn't know. I wouldn't have anything to measure it off to say I saw siblings or anything like that. Yeah, but like that type of dog is often- they like to track yes. because you look at people who use, you know, do retriever trials, they reinforce with retrieving. Yeah. So the main job that the dog is going to need to do, he loves to do regardless of, yeah, you don't have to convince him to do it. It's, it's like bite work. My dog loves to genes. bite. Right? Yeah. Mm. And, and, you know, with Frank, for example, the other day we did a big track where I circled back around on myself and, and we weren't going to get to a find at the end of the track. Jazz was just going to call it at one point and just say like, you've gone far enough. So I was already back around at the start point and done this big loop and I was watching from the top of the hill watching a track she gets to the end she pops the ball tells the dog yep you did good plays with him then 
okay, we'll walk back. She drops the leash. The dog fucking follows the track back to the car. Yep. Like he just tracked that track. Yeah, I've seen dogs he do He followed that the same track backwards yep. with the ball in his mouth. Yep. So it's like when I'm allowed to do whatever I want, even though I've got the ball, and when I'm allowed to do whatever I want, I want to follow that track. Yep. Right? Whereas the other dog, he wouldn't dream of doing that shit. Mm. He's like, let's play with the fucking ball. That's what we're here for. He want, he bounces all over you all the way back and he's mm. like, hey, start the game again. I want to play with the ball. So like every dogs are individuals and they're brothers, for God's sake, doing the same behavior of tracking and are reinforced in completely different ways. In that situation, we were talking about the thinking and feeling side of the dog, like what's in its head at that point in time. And interpretations, because that's what we talked about before as well, is the dog getting back on the track thinking, well, last time I did this track, it led to something amazing. So if I redo it again, I might once again get the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Totally possible. Or Mm. he just is like, I just like doing this. I just like it. It's actually almost impossible to know, but it's intriguing to think about. Absolutely. Mm. we got to wrap up. We do. Uh, we got to go train dogs. We do. Hey, I like these ones. We're going to go through some more questions. There's some really good stuff there that we didn't get anywhere near answering. So I guess the next few episodes will be this kind of stuff. There was a good one about kids and I've got a really cool story about something that happened the other day when I was watching kids play with my own dog and I really want to talk about that. So it's pretty exciting. Cool. That's it. Another episode, Canon Paradigm, in the bag. Yeah. If you like it, if you're in traffic listening, get out, stand on your bonnet, scream as loud as you can. I like this Canon Paradigm podcast. You guys should listen to it. It's really good. Another great suggestion I think would be good. If you're in a really important board meeting, just Mm. ask the boss to shut the fuck up for a minute. Yeah. Just tell him he's coming off stupid what he's saying and then tell him, have you heard about the Canon Paradigm? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's a good idea. Yeah. And ask him if his name is Pam or Pan. Pan or Pan. (laughs) 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 Another way you could really spread the message of the show is if you're in a theatre, yep. just lean over the chair in front of you and whisper in the ear of the person, have you listened to the Canon Paradigm? Even better, when you're in a urinal, next time oh, disobey yeah. the rule of leaving a space between you and just yeah. cuddle up cosy next person, have a little peek at the same time. Yeah. And then, <laughs> yeah. Have you no, heard- so what you should do is get real close to them yep. and stare right at their doodle. <laughs> and then even if you're a woman, doesn't matter. We're not sexist here. Get real close to them at the urinal, <laughs> awkwardly close. When they look at you and go, you're right. Go, oh, yeah, have you heard of the Canon Paradigm? Yep. And then give them a little massage as you're about to walk off. Yeah. And then yeah. pull out your ear pod and put yeah. it in their ear. Yeah. Everybody, oh. Nobody gets grossed out when people do that. Absolutely. No yep. one. You can even do things like share your face mask, all that sort of sensual. Yeah. <laughs> what we just said, don't do any of that. Do you know what? It'll end you in jail. On the COVID thing, yep. the mask thing, right? Mm-hmm. Thank God we don't have to mm-hmm. wear masks around here anymore. Yep. But the amount of people I saw with the same little cloth mask on every day, <laughs> I was like, that is disgusting. Yes. That is as disgusting as it gets. The mold spores that you would be breathing in every day. I think I had like a purpose mask for about three days and then I was like, no, I'm wearing a disposable mask and I'm putting a new one on every day. Sometimes multiple times per day I change the mask. If I was somewhere I had to wear it all day, I was like, a couple of times a day I'm changing that fucking thing. I had cloth masks and disposable ones, but I had several of the cloth masks so I could just chuck them in the wash, wash because, yeah. yeah, as you said, the, the thing is you're touching surfaces Ugh. and then you're taking your mask off with that hand. Yeah. And then oh, you never put- mind that. Never mind the, the con- cross-contamination. Mm. That's cross-contamination. Like you goes to your hand, to your mask, then you breathe. No, yeah. I'm talking about the straight contamination out of your face back into your own face. Oh, yeah, just, just- 24 hours later, the mold spores you're breathing in. Anyway, yeah. that's another topic. Yeah. If you want to put the show, best way to do that is jump into Patreon. If you like Q&A type stuff that's in there every month, I'm going to be doing Q&As. The next, yep. This month is the first month that I'm going to be doing it on YouTube. We're 
trying that out for realsies. We've done all the tests. I think it's going to work. We're going to mm-hmm. do that. I've got to set a date for it. And I would like to do more of those. Jump into there. They're, they're always good fun. Yep. Another way to support the show is Teespring. Get yourself some cool merch, socks, underpants, wall tapestries, all, all kinds of, of things. All right? of Whatever just, you want. Yep. Whatever you want, just buy it. Yep. Just rock out with your sock out. Yep. Yeah. And if you want to get in contact with us, best way to do that is jump into the Facebook group. In the Facebook group, it's called the Canon Paradigm Discussion Group. There's lots of good conversations in there. If you want to ask questions in relation to these Q&As that we're doing right now, yep. that's where you can do it. Also, just you know, network with some like-minded, nice people. And boost us up on the gram too. We need to get up to that 10K mark on the Instagram. How close are we? We are 8,700, I think. Come on, guys. We can do this. Yeah. We can do this. Yeah. We need to boost those numbers. They're just rookie numbers. We need to pump them up. Yeah, those are rookie numbers. Yep. All right. And uh, shoot us an email. We're info at the Goodbye. <laughs>